I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. We hear from the brother of this boy, viciously mauled by a dog in County Wexford over the weekend. Also tonight, bankers' bonuses are back. More than a decade after they were capped during the financial crisis, the government eases rules around what those in the banking sector can get paid. The reality that I have to acknowledge is that with the passage of time and with developments in the banking sector, things are really changing. And a new report takes a look at what young people really think about climate change and what they think the government should be doing more of. Do join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. begin tonight with the devastating story of Alejandro Mizan. The nine-year-old was attacked by a dog on Sunday evening in Enniscorthy in County Wexford, suffering shocking injuries. He was transferred to Crumlin Children's Hospital, where he has been treated for those injuries. Gardaí say as a result of an investigation into subsequent related matters, a man in his 20s was arrested this morning. Well, I want to bring in Alejandro's brother, Raul, who joins me in studio. And Raul, I know you've had a very, very difficult uh, couple of days and I know you've just come from ICU this evening um, at Crumlin Hospital. How is he? How is your little brother doing? Um, my little brother at the moment is in the hospital. Um, the doctors are taking care of him now. Um, he has a tube now in his neck so he can breathe. Um, at the moment, he can't talk. Um, he knows where he is, he knows everything what happened, but he, ne- he doesn't know how he looks now. So hopefully, hopefully, please God, we just thank God that um, he's still alive. That's what matters to us now. In, every- in everything, uh, when, when negative stuff comes to our lives, um, we kind of want to see the positive thing. So the positive thing of this situation is that he's still alive. So thanks God. Because doctors, when he arrived at Crumlin, were really quite shocked by his injuries, weren't they? Yeah, they said that they'd never seen anything like this before. They were shocked and all the years of the experience that they had working as, as the doctors and stuff, um, they said they'd never seen anything like this before. And they're, uh, like, they're shocked at how he's still, he's still alive. Give me an idea of the extent of the injuries that your lovely nine-year-old brother has suffered. Um, he has no lip left. The lower lip is it's gone. Um, his face, like in here, it's destroyed. Like he's completely destroyed. His face is completely destroyed. He will never be the same kid again. Never, ever, ever, ever. You feel like he has been left with permanent scarring because of this for life. Yeah, yeah. All all his face is destroyed. His leg as well. It's injured, badly injured. Um, his uh, tummy, 
but not not too much in the tummy, like just a little bit. Of, I think it was from the dog's uh, scratches, you know, and a little bit on his eyes. I, I I thank God too that he still can see people and he can still have vision to to look in the world. Like, will he be facing further surgeries? Do you believe? Yes, loads of surgeries, loads of surgeries, because at the moment he's in a very bad condition. As I said, his face is completely destroyed. And he is in ICU at this point? Yes, yeah. How long do you expect he will be in ICU and be in hospital? Um, the doctor said that he will be there for around, oh, well, more than a month. More. And I even said the doctor, there's uh, no rush of him bringing him home. We just want him to be there with the doctors and all the time to be... Uh, like with with the doctors, so we know that he's with the doctors, so that's that's kind of okay. You know, he's in very good hands. The doctors and everybody in the hospital, they're very good people. I have to say they're ex extremely good. They will treat him the best, that's what I can say. Is he comfortable at this point, or is he in a lot of pain? Um... I can't. I can't really. I can't uh, say that he's com comfortable because uh, he's asleep. He's asleep. Uh, tomorrow will be the third day that he will be asleep. He wake up sometimes for like um, two, three seconds, and then he goes back to sleep. And I think that no, he doesn't feel any pain at the moment. But of course, he will feel pain like later on. But at the moment, there's no pain for him. He doesn't feel any pain. Uh, when he does open his eyes, does he? acknowledge you? Does he recognise yeah, you? I yeah. know you say he, he can't speak at present, he can't communicate with you like that. Um, please God, he will be able to talk at some stage, but it's it's not a certain thing. We don't, we don't know if this possible, but maybe, maybe he will be speaking. And when he opens his eyes, um, I did a mistake, I cried in front of him. He knows me like his older brother, strong brother, you know, and I, I never cried in front of him, never in my life. And when he saw me crying, he went like this. He wanted to say something, but he couldn't. And he went thumbs up to me, like, you know, just like to make me feel good. You know, in, in the situation that he was, he was still trying to make me feel good, you know. Because you're very close, aren't you? Oh, extremely close. Uh, everything we do together, I, I take him everywhere he wanted. Uh, it's not only me, like all my family. All he, he was like the most loved in the family. Like everybody spoiled him. Everybody loves him. Um, yeah. And I just want to say about um, all the people that prayed for my brother, I really appreciate what they done. And they did a foundation too, it's called... Uh, the GoFundMe page. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. GoFundMe page, just playing with my friends, That that's what I call um, everything little bit helps, you know, for yeah, my I brother. I understand um, it was somebody who lived in your area yeah, who set up or, a GoFundMe page. Yeah, and yeah. the target initially was 2,000 euro and it's well in excess of 40,000 euro at yeah, this point. Yeah, we're really thankful to our neighbour. She's the best. She's she done a lot of good things for us and we really appreciate what she's done for us. There's no words that can describe how grateful we are to her. You know, she, she was just there beside us all the time. Because this will... I suppose, support your family at this point, <clears throat> won't it? Yeah. Perhaps support uh, your lovely little brother in the future if he needs further surgeries or further yeah, interventions. Yeah, that, that's why I'm scared as well of uh, my little brother. I know when maybe he will get older. Um, I don't want him maybe to be pushed by other kids, just uh, the way he looks, you know, because he looks very, very bad. Like, And maybe he will be 
well, not bullied, but maybe pushed away. Maybe he won't have friends just because of his looks, you know? Because you feel he will be disfigured at some point. Yes, 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 yes. And you said you and your brother, your little shadow is what he sounds like. Yeah, yeah. That he was into his sort of his looks, his haircut, his cool image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you see, this is very uh, bad thing now because he loved... Uh, always to get haircut, he always wanted to dress okay. He like he loves himself, you know that kind of way. And now with his face, I think this is terrible news for him. I don't, I, I don't know how we. He, he doesn't know how he looks at the moment, and we just can't find the words just to to explain to him. Maybe I will uh, do with the marker on my face. Just then I will look. He will see me, and then he will see himself. And then, oh, look, my brother has a too, so it's okay, you know? So I, this is I, I, this is why I, uh, I think I, I will do, just to make him feel a little bit better, you know? I will... You want to be there for him. You are there for him. You're by his side, aren't you? Yeah, I was always by his side, always, all the time, not only with, with this situation, you know? Me and my little brother, we were always together, always played together. We did everything together, you know? It's not just you though, is it? It's your younger sister and your mum and dad and your wider family. How are they? How are they coping? Um, my mother, um, she's, she's in a depression. Um, since the accident happened, um, she was always, always crying. I haven't seen her without tears in her eyes since the accident happened. Um, just because we have a very big family and this kind of accident never happened in our family. Never, ever, ever. And we just don't know how to um, handle it. We don't know how, how to react. There's no words can describe our pain in our, that we have in our hearts at the moment. At the moment, um, my mother is, I said, in a very big depression. Um, there's no words that can describe her, her feelings. My father as well. And I am, I am in bits too, but I just, uh, I want to be his voice. You know, I want to go up and get justice for him. I'm on beats as well, but just want to be strong because that's how he knows me. Mm. Strong, you know, that's why I'm going to be. I, I'm doing all this for him. You want to give him a voice today yes. because he doesn't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For all of those who were involved in this in any way or who witnessed this in any way, there must be a huge amount of trauma. Oh, he, there is trauma, yes, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't, I don't have words to describe how all my family, and it's not only all my family, it's all my friends too. Um, there's people over from my country and people all, all over the world ringing to, to see how he is, you know. Like as I said, he was a very popular kid, loved by everyone, not only my family, loved by everyone. He's, he's a very funny guy, he makes jokes, you know. Like even if you don't know him, he talks to you two, three words and then you love him straight away. You want to meet him again, you know, at the shop or something. You know, you just, you just can't wait to meet him again. That, that's how nice he is. He looks like he's fun. Yeah. And yeah. outgoing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your lovely little friend, isn't he? I'm just looking at the lovely photographs of yeah. him there. Yeah. What you've said that you feel his life has changed now and that his injuries are life changing. What do you think now the future does hold for him? Um, all I can say that is we are beside me, beside him all the time. We will be beside him, um, and I know there is a very, very tough future for him. Just um, you know, maybe by he looks, 
he can he he won't be the, as normal as everybody you know maybe when he sees in some in the mirror and then he sees another kids he will be like oh look why i'm not like him and by when i went to the hospital to him i touched his leg by mistake and he he just got very scared you know i think he's uh, i i can't i don't know the word of it mm. he's like uh, traumatized i think that's traumatized yeah traumatized yeah he's traumatized he he will have nightmares of this uh, hopefully hopefully mentally he will get better you know because you say he is a strong little kid he's a very strong little kid and i don't think um other kid will survive this you know he's very very strong well i know god did this god saved him yeah god saved him and yeah i know you wanted to come on tonight because you did want to thank all of those people who have been in contact with you yeah. who have given money to the GoFundMe page as i said over 40,000 raised already and i know you feel grateful to those who came to your brother's rescue on sunday afternoon too yeah, yeah i'm very grateful i don't i don't have words to thank to thank everybody but i will i will take uh, time and i will go to each other in each other house and to thank them you know personally i will do this uh, maybe tomorrow i will do this i go to everybody's house and just thank say thank you to them because maybe if it wasn't for them probably my brother would be dead you know it's just a matter of a few seconds all right well uh, rayol i really appreciate you uh, coming in to us this evening and we send all of our love and our best regards to your lovely little thank brother thank you for having me wish him a safe recovery thank you very much we're going to leave it there lots more after this break Well, it's been more than a decade since the financial crisis, a moment etched into the psyche of the Irish nation. This morning, one of the major decisions made following that crisis was changed. The cabinet has approved plans to ease restrictions on pay and bonuses for staff at the banks that were bailed out by the Irish taxpayer during that time. Here's what Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue had to say a little earlier. The reality that I have to acknowledge is that with the passage of time, and with developments in the banking sector things are really changing there is now a really strong competition for workers for our banks both here in ireland in our domestic banking sector and also in the international financial services sector located here in ireland well opposition parties have come out strongly against the decision here with Sinn Féin's Mary Lou Macdonald There is something really twisted about allowing big pay hikes for wealthy bankers while workers and families endure an unprecedented cost of living crisis. It's a real kick in the teeth for ordinary people. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Peter Burke, Minister of State at the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Sinn Féin TD Rose Conway Walsh, financial correspondent at The Currency, Sean Keyes, and Virgin Media News political correspondent, Gavin Riley. You're all very welcome to the programme. Gavin, I'm going to start with you because we said, look, at this time is etched into the psyche of the Irish nation. I mean, there was huge public anger at the time when the catastrophic lending practices of some of these banks was exposed, uh, when they were bailed out, and when the pay and bonuses mm. of those in charge of these 
banks uh, was made known to the public. Yeah, that we, we all remember some of the controversy there was around the time, particularly when Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Nationwide were nationalised and then the, the, the revelations that, for example, Michael Fingleton had received a bonus in the order of about €1 million Euro and received luxury items that there was a clamour for him to return and that we never got. And it was partly fuelled by that, that the decision was made at the time of the bailout when a lot of those banks were, were nationalised effectively when the entire sector, other than Ulster Bank, which was nationalised by the British taxpayer, um, pretty much every other institution was nationalised by the Irish taxpayer. And naturally enough, there was this, this decision made at the time that it simply wouldn't be appropriate for anyone in the banking sector to earn any more than a ceiling of half a million euro. And there was an argument that some people said, well, we are contractually entitled to bonuses. Mm. So the government introduced a super tax of 89%, which meant that any bonus over a certain ceiling was effectively not really worth receiving at all because of the penal tax that you were to pay on it. Um, circumstances have obviously changed quite a bit in the meantime. Maybe a lot of the public anger about that time may not have ebbed away. But it might be worth remembering exactly the context of why this has now come up again, because 12 months ago, the government commissioned a review on the future of the banking sector all in all, on the back partly of Ulster Bank deciding that it was going to pull out of the Irish market, KBC Bank likewise. And in the meantime, we've had so much discussion around the withdrawal of cash services and ATMs being removed from certain communities. It was with that in mind that the government commissioned this review from an independent panel um, to, to really examine the future of banking in Ireland. And they have said, by the by, as well as several other findings about the availability of ATMs and cash services, they have said that circumstances have now changed. And as you've heard Pascal who say there, that there's now such a market for, for bankers and, and banking talent, if you want to call it that, around the world, that they now believe that Ireland is at a competitive disadvantage by having this and that it is now time, 11 years on, to relax it again. And at the time when we introduced these caps, these restrictions, we weren't the only country to do it, were we? No, the UK also considered something, although not really on the same level, because you did still have senior bankers at the very top of some major British retail banks still earning extraordinary amounts of money. But we were the only one of the countries that were bailed out by the EU and the IMF to do so. And we were the only one of the Eurozone countries that had to support its own banking sector that introduced this. So really, And by, we are by still comparison. paying for that support, which we'll hear, I'm sure, people um, mention time and time again today, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And, and you can never put a price on the social consequences in the meantime, because even if you ultimately get the money back, and we have received many billions back from the banks that were subject to the bank guarantee, they paid a fee to be covered by that. Um, but all in all, of course, you can never put a value on the social cost of all of that and all the, the opportunity cost by, by the state and by the people in the meantime. OK, Sean, you just might bring me through exactly what these restrictions were. The restrictions that were brought in on bankers' pay, well, um, there is... 500,000 euro limits on base pay and then, as Gavin was saying, uh, kind of a punitive uh, tax on bonuses. Um, so I suppose the idea was uh, through the financial crisis, there was sort of middle man managers at these banks. They were taking huge risks. They kind of one hand didn't know what the other hand was doing. And next thing you know, when the thing blew up, people, it, it all unraveled and people learned what had been happening kind of down, down, down through the different layers of the banks. So that was the sort of the... Um, the argument for doing it, I suppose, was to prevent risks building up in the banks by, you know, limiting bankers' pay, limiting the incentive of individual bankers to take on risks. Yeah, because there really was a, a feeling, I suppose, that there was a link, wasn't there, between the performance of a bank, the profitability of a bank, and the bonuses and the pay of those in charge of that bank. And they were trying to break that material link. That was the thinking. That was the thinking. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's telling that we're, one of, we're the only country to do it the way we've done it. Um, you know, lots of countries went through a financial crisis. Uh, there was a big global rethink of bank regulation and how we're going to make sure this was never going to happen again. This isn't a tool that was reached for very commonly around the world. And I don't, we'll come to it, but I don't think there's a re I think the reason for that is that I'm not sure it's actually a very effective tool when it comes to that 
macroprudential piece preventing the banks from blowing up. Yeah, but what is also interesting is that at the moment this, the, the change to these restrictions only applies to Bank of Ireland, but the former Bank of Ireland chief, uh, Frances McDonough, she had gotten her an exemption to these restrictions anyhow. She had? Well, Quite she, a significant exemption, hadn't she? She had, but her base salary was still, I believe, capped at a million euro, which, you know, you might say is a lot of money. But not the 500,000. To some, yeah, not the 500,000, but she went down to Credit Suisse. And I don't know what she's getting paid now, but it's certainly, certainly a multiple of what she was getting paid here. And that's what it boils down to. It's whether you, what happens if when you lose people like that. Yeah, even though she did say, I think, in an interview at the time that it wasn't the main factor that drove her to leave, didn't she? I'm sure there's all sorts of factories. I mean, she, maybe she moved to Switzerland. It's a, it's a nice country. <laughs> and nobody's going to judge her for that. Mm. Um, Rose... This recommendation, as Gavin said, this came from a Department of Finance review into the banking sector. And although it will affect chiefs of the banks, it affects all ordinary workers too. They will benefit from this. Is that not a good but thing? But the cap, I mean, that's what Michael Martin tried to say today, but the cap of 500,000 uh, affects the, the, the top people who are paid. And we have to remember, these are the people who acted absolutely recklessly, not only in terms of the 20, 29 uh, billion, uh, the original bailout, that people really paid the price and are still paying the price in terms of the austerity and the cuts that came by them, but the cold tracker mortgage tobacco, where we see that, I mean, that's absolutely pro proven and the banks fought it all the way to deny it and keep it covered up and to deny it, while people's homes and people's lives were absolutely wrecked. They were fined, what, 270 million for that. So they were found to be guilty, but not one single banker was held to account. And now we come along when we have the cost of living crisis and we have people on low and middle incomes being told well, you couldn't possibly get a pay rise because it'll impact on inflation. And we come along and we lift the cap to say we don't think that 500 million is quite enough for you. Yeah. Five, you know, it's it's just 500,000. It's just crazy. And we are hearing that, Peter Burke, aren't we, all the time? We've had loads of government politicians here saying, you know, don't chase uh, high wages at the moment because it'll be inflationary, but a slightly separate issue. But it is, as Rose says, a kick in the teeth to a lot of ordinary workers who are looking and thinking, surely 500,000 or close to a million in the case of uh, the previous Bank of Ireland uh, chief, surely that's a sufficient salary for anybody in this industry. Absolutely, I can understand how people would feel like that. But as you quite rightly pointed out, the chief executive officer was on more than that anyway. So the cap was lifted in that instance. So we had a cap that wasn't reflective of the salary that the individual was on. And if you look at in relation to uh, Bank of Ireland, it's fully independent. Um, we put around 4.7 billion euro into Bank of Ireland. We got back uh, 6.7, so we got 2 billion uh, extra back. It would be the only bank now that's uh, licensed, that's fully independent and private, that would be undertaking restrictions in terms of pay. And I think as a consistent approach across the economy, that would be tenable for the Department of Finance to put additional restrictions on a private bank while it's competing in the marketplace that's very aggressive. We have, you know, the top global bank's headquarters uh, in Dublin. It's a very, very competitive open economy in Ireland and they're getting it difficult to recruit the best people for it. And are they? Are they having absolutely. difficulties, Sean? Is there evidence that there's these huge vacancies across the top positions? I just want to get that from Sean. Is there evidence of huge vacancies and real difficulty recruiting into these positions because of this cap? Well, I think that the telling thing is where, um, where top bankers have gone. I mean, so... Bank of Ireland has lost, I think, uh, two CFOs, a CEO and a chief operating officer, a COO. And they've all gone to you know, familiar businesses like Mosgrave, CRH, companies that we know. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, which have just, they would they would pay the market rate. And if they take an experienced Bank of Ireland CFO, they'd be very happy to take them. So, I mean, that, maybe that's the evidence for it. The other evidence for it, I think the most, the, the most uh, convincing piece of evidence for it is just simply looking at the bank's share prices. So on the day that Francesca McDonough announced that she was leaving, they put out the announcement when the markets were closed. Overnight, uh, then the next morning, the markets opened. Bank of Ireland was worth around 600 million less. It's 10% of its market cap. That's now, how important this position is. Well, you can never say for certain with market prices, other things are going on, but it's certainly indicative. And I think... That's sort of what we're talking about here. Like when you've got a very big company and it's very, the decisions that a CEO or whoever makes are very consequential. A company is managing 130 billion of assets. The difference between the best person and the second best person is, can be very big. And that's... Is that not a fair point, Rose? Like we, no, well, we have to deal with the reality yeah. of today. We want yeah. the best people yeah. in running our banks yeah. in this country and we have to pay yeah. dear for them. But, but, the, but the reality of where we are at the moment is that we can't recruit nurses, we can't recruit essential workers and that's where the focus and the priority no, of, the of the minister should be. Here. As but, Sean says, but, these are people, yeah. the difference between having the very best person and the second per- person is huge, can have some really significant consequences no. and we need to be able to yeah. pay for the best. We want to have the best banking sector we can in this country. Well, we didn't have it and we paid for it before and we paid the price dearly for it and they were very well paid for it as well. So just because you're paying enormous, extraordinary salaries doesn't mean that you're going to get the best person. Yeah, you know, and isn't that a fair point? They weren't held to account. Peter Burke, that there'll be lots of people, you know, watching yeah. this evening thinking, we paid people, mm. you quoted their bonuses of a million euro yeah. and then we saw do. how these banks were being run, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow that just because you pay massive wages, you get the best people. Well, I think it's chalk and cheese in terms of the regulatory environment that we are operating now in the banking system. There's a lot more controls that are put in through the European Banking Authority. Uh, Is it Europe. chalk and cheese, Absolutely. though? Absolutely. We've in just terms talked of, about, in, in terms about of the clawback, tracker mortgage oh, scandal, which yeah. the banks had to be dragged and by the central bank shameful. to admit it. Absolutely. So, yeah. that, has that there is... been this huge 
change yeah. in culture in the banks that you talk about, that it is a chalk and cheese situation to how it was 12 years ago? I never said there was a huge change in culture. We have still huge cultural issues to respond to. And I was on the finance committee that worked on the tracker mortgage issue. It was a huge scandal and some families paid a horrific price. But equally, I also worked through the recession in a practice as a chartered accountant. And I saw the horrific uh, price businesses paid at that time. But the reality is we're in a different banking environment and as unpalatable as it may be to many, yeah. you need a strong, robust banking sector yeah. to ensure that you have a strong economy. And the reality is when Ulster Bank left, one and a quarter million customers were disenfranchised. You had politicians calling for businesses to be given overdraft extensions in different banks, etc. Yeah. And that causes uncertainty in our economony. And that's why Close. we need... We, two we've gone... That. One and a half Just years ago, we had five yeah. banks operating in Ireland. Now we're down to three. You know, before and the financial crisis, we had 12 retail banks. We're un under pressure and consumers were... And just, this, this, year, just this year alone, the banks were fined £197 million for regulatory Absolutely. breaches. I know people who have uh, missed a mortgage payment because of the change of banks, because of the banks pulling out. And I know in one case where 13 times that person, a lone parent, was contacted in a short number of days around that. So don't tell me that the culture in the banks have changed. And then we changed. have to look in terms of rural Ireland. You did say in fairness, Peter Byrne, to look in terms of the branches In terms of the regulatory environment that comes from Europe now, in terms of how closed. bonuses are paid. You like can't we have get a super tax in uh, 89% over 20,000 now, but also in terms of there's very strong clawback mechanisms in terms of bonuses have to be paid and have to be structured in a way to show what they're realised on. Do you agree with that, Sean, on. that there are changes in place to sort of protect uh, the shareholders of the bank now and the ordinary public that weren't there 11 years ago. So we won't get back into this place where people are chasing these high bonuses and high salaries and using the profit of the bank to get there. Well, I think, yeah, definitely it's a very different environment. I think the banks back then were sort of built for speed. They were very profitable, very risky, and they were very fragile. Built for now, greed. And greed, absolutely. And now, but now it's the opposite. We've, we've gone the other direction. So what do we have? We've got, you know, new institution that's kind of newly empowered, the Central Bank of Ireland taking charge of this. And you mentioned shareholders being protected. It's actually quite the opposite. The, the most important change is that shareholders are really now on the hook for their own banks. Banks, If the banks start losing money willy-nilly, if uh, their managers get out of control, they're taking too much risk, it's the shareholders who will pay. So this is a group of people with every interest in making sure that their, their banks are well run and not run in a risky way. Now just briefly, Claire, just on, on the point that uh, Sean made earlier on about the other staff within Bank of Ireland, because it is worth bearing in mind that the lifting of this half a million cap now applies to all banking staff. So if anybody can negotiate themselves a higher rate, there now there is no ceiling within Bank of Ireland. And Sean mentioned chief financial officers, you could have chief credit officers, very other senior people in that bank who now can charge whatever the market will pay for them. You could argue that if this was to try and make the Irish banking sector more competitive, that the two remaining banks that still have some state ownership, AIB and permanent TSB, are now in some ways almost handicapped because if AIB is trying to recruit a new chief credit officer or, or someone else in a senior role, and if Bank of Ireland is now you know, unlimited, theoretically, in the amount that it can pay, Bank of Ireland has to be able to compete with all those other firms in the IFSC. But AIB and permanent TSB have to be able to compete with Bank of Ireland as well. And you could find the state-owned banks actually now finding it harder to recruit people 
because the state has decided yeah. to allow one of its own competitors to go higher. So what are the government going to do about that? At what stage do you think they're going to leave, lift these restrictions as everybody expects they're going to for PTSB and for AAB? Well, in relation to PTSB, two-thirds of ownership is still in the hands of the state. Um, I think AAB is around 57 58%. So they're a long way away from getting to a stage where they will be repaying the state back. But critically, I think PTSB acquired a huge proportion of the Ulster Bank loan book through the Irish economy. I think that'll put it in a strong footing uh, into next year to grow and obviously try and uh, repay the state and obviously get stronger. As but do we know at what points do you think it would have the government to, will The state say... will have to be repaid, as far as I can see, because you can't take a situation where the taxpayer is going to be put at risk. You have to strengthen the bank and hopefully it will continue to grow. We've re reduced our stake as much as we can and we'll continue to do that because the government wants a private banking sector that's robust and it's able to support a growing economy that we have. Uh, are you surprised, Sean, at the timing of all of this? I mean, this is probably one of Pascal Donoghue's final big policy changes before he uh, swaps position as no longer with the Minister for Finance and it is deeply unpopular. Absolutely. Um, well, I suppose you could look at it as um, he is doing some, depends on your perspective, either he's, uh, you know, bailing out his friends before he has a chance, the last thing he does, or maybe you could say that he's doing something that he believes to be beneficial for the country, but that's politically unpopular, doesn't want the new Minister for Finance to be saddled with that burden. So he is taking it on, it's Pascal's fault, he did it, and off he goes, he goes to the next job. Mm, uh, Peter Burke, there's a lot of people today, including Mary Lee McDonald and Sinn Féin, saying this is just real Fine Gael. It is them bailing out their friends in the bank. And it's a kick in the teeth to ordinary workers struggling out there. But unfortunately, that doesn't reflect the facts. When you look at the central bank, they're independent. They put those fines in terms of the mortgage tracker scandal on the banks. They say that we need it. There's an independent uh, committee that adjudicated on this. And also we have to look at, we have 250,000 SMEs So it's not a kick in the teeth to ordinary people? Absolutely not, because the facts of the matter are the cap is lifted in a bank that has repaid the state over two billion more than it put into it. That's a fact. It's undisputable. It's a private bank now. So how can you have a system in Ireland that operates that one bank, which is entirely private... So you have no difficulties at all uh, with the finish, optics of if this? Let me finish operates differently than 35 other banking licences in the state. That's not uh, viable as a, an open economy. I can as someone who worked I at don't. the coalface with I businesses through the recession, okay, just I can understand and I, and what I would Rose is advocating will just have horrific consequences no. to our economy. And I, that's I, borne out by only three banks We saw the horrific consequences to the economy when we were paying these very same people millions upon millions in bonuses. And now we want to get back to that situation again. Well, no, in fairness, people have changed. People will decide for themselves how much of a kick in the teeth this is for them. There are people who struggled with high interest rates when we had zero interest rates across Europe and how they've been treated by the banks. And they will see what the priorities of this government are and they will decide. All right, look, I'm going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Sean Keyes and to Gavin Riley for coming in to us this evening. Peter and Rose will be staying with me as we discuss young people's attitudes towards climate change and what it might mean for political parties going forward. Well, it's no secret that young people have taken on climate change as a cause with the most to lose. They are the forefront of pushing for change. But a report by the ESRI lays bare young people's thinking. 
claims young people in Ireland are willing to fly less and eat less meat. But they see the government is having the responsibility to bring about the change. Earlier, I spoke to author Pete Lunn, head of the ESRI's Behavioural Research Unit in Ebegambi, asking him why he decided to survey this particular demographic. So this is work that's funded by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, who were interested in how to communicate with young people about climate change. And what we realized when we first looked at this issue was it's very, very difficult to survey young people, and it hadn't really been done before. It's hard to get a nationally representative um, survey of people who are under the age of 18. Now, this survey is age 16 to 24. That's the young people we're talking about. So we decided it's not been done before, that it would be good to get a measure of where they were at in terms of their perceptions of climate action, what they thought should be done, and how they felt about it. And when it comes to what they thought should be done or what needs to be done, you found that they want more radical change in terms of how we approach and tackle climate change. How radical, how far are they willing to go? Yeah, so we found essentially across the board that young people want more radical climate policy. Um, more than 90% of them are worried about climate change. That's a higher percentage than for the population as a whole, which is more like 70%. So young people are more worried and they want more radical policy. So a couple of examples, you know, by a majority of around two to one, this cohort of young people would favor banning internal domestic flights that are non-essential, like, you know, not medical passenger flights, essentially internally within Ireland. They don't think that should be happening. They favor it being banned. And they think that town and city centers should be made car-free zones. And again, that's by about a majority, about two to one, roughly speaking. So that's quite radical climate policy in that probably it's not on the agenda and most of the population might not be in favor of it, but certainly most young people are. And does this thinking apply across the boards? Any gender divide? Any rural-urban divide there? That's interesting. So we do find a small gender difference. It's not huge, but it is there. And that actually is in line with international evidence as well. So that's not unique to Ireland. It is the case that women generally are more pro-environmental than men albeit that men are more likely to use active travel, particularly cycling. So they're more likely to engage in certain pro-environmental behaviors. That's largely actually an issue to do with safety. Women would cycle more if they felt that cycling was safe and there were segregated bike lanes. But one of the really interesting findings in this study, and it isn't just this study, we have it in evidence for the adult population as a whole actually, is that any urban rural divide in how worried people are about climate change, how willing they are to act, and how much they want the government to act, if it is there at all, is very small. So the idea that there is a large divide between a kind of urban middle class, if you like, particularly a Dublin-centric urban middle class, and a rural community that views the world differently when it comes to climate, that simply is not true. And we found that for the adult population earlier this year, and now we found it among this group of young people too. But what there was evidence of, which might surprise people, given how climate aware a lot of young people are, was that there's still a lack of understanding of the impact of certain activities and what they have in the environment. Yeah, so what we did was we had this group of young people look at a list of about sort of 12 or so climate actions. And we said, can you categorize these into actions that are high impact, medium impact and low impact? And actually, to be honest, young people are really poor at this. I mean, understanding that recycling has a far lower impact than avoiding, for example, long haul flights or that using a reusable shopping bag is very low impact compared to changing your diet in a more plant based direction. So actually, they're not good at understanding 
Um, you know, what individual actions have the biggest climate impact? Um, and we were surprised because we thought young people might be better than the rest of the adult population, older adults, and it turned out that they weren't. They're no better and possibly even slightly worse. But interestingly, in a way that kind of explains why they are more in favor of radical policy, because people feel that the issue is too confusing. There are too many things they could do. They really don't know which the right things to do are or which the things that have the biggest impact might be. So in a way, that's consistent with the idea that they think the government has the primary responsibility more than the individual, which is another response they gave us, and that they want to see the government act more radically on climate. Was there a political party there that they identified with, Pete, that they said, yes, this party will present these radical policy changes that we are looking for? Uh, to be honest, we didn't ask them that, so we don't know. All I can tell you is it was a representative sample of these young people, so it presumably would match the, the kind of party structure that you would see in opinion polls, but we didn't ask them explicitly, so we can't uh, compare their climate views. But did they to feel there was leadership there from a political point of view? Well, I think what was certainly true in what we saw was there was an element of very genuine worry and a real feeling that there needed to be more responsibility taken. And you know, that extended, in fact, to you know, young people more being willing to accept higher levels of tax on things that they might purchase. You know, things like meat, for example. I mean, 90 percent of them are eating meat, even though many of them said they want to eat less. You know, they want more of them want to see environmental taxes on meat than don't which is quite a radical policy, it would affect their own pockets. So I think they definitely want more to be done. But exactly how they express themselves politically and through political parties and so on, we didn't explore in this study. All right, uh, Pete Lon, we leave it there. Thanks, as always. Thank you. Well, let's get more on this. Peter Burke and Rose Conway Walsh are still with me. And I'm also joined on Skype by climate activist uh, Dylan Murphy. Dylan, I'm going to come uh, to you because one of the things I did think was interesting from what Pete was saying is that there's certainly the ideology there. You know, a lot of the young people that they surveyed want, for example, to see higher taxes on meat, want a plant-based diet. But there's not the action, perhaps, that we would expect from young people. Yeah, I would somewhat disagree with that. Like, I think what this shows is that young people understand that we need societal change, not something that you'll see if you go to Friday for Future protests. And there was a big massive one there before uh, COVID. Um, the energy was there. And they chant system change, not climate change. So the youth understand that we need systemic change to our society. And one particular statistic in that study that I thought was particularly interesting was the 70, 78% um, fine on businesses. So 78% of respondents said they wanted fines on businesses um, from an environmental perspective. And it just shows that the youth want those kind of systemic changes. And as Pete said earlier, they want more action from their government. So they understand that the systemic change can come from the government and, and government policy. And that they are willing to pay for it. So how far are you willing to go then, Dylan? Well, that's another good one in that survey. It showed that 65% um, of uh, the respondents from that survey, they wanted a shift to renewable energy. And that's the core when it comes to the climate crisis. That's what's driving the climate crisis is fossil fuels. And the youth are in that particular answer. I said it would have been a lot higher, but it said uh, particularly, do you want to pay more for renewable energy? So if it was just renewable energy, I'd say that would be near 100%. But when the pay more caveat is in there, it's still 65%, uh, a big majority of, of, of the youth. And what was also interesting was that young people sort of underestimate the threat presented by certain uh, activities. Does that surprise you? Is that down to political messaging around this issue? 
Well, I think the framing of the survey was particularly around individual action. It wasn't so much, um, based off what Pete was saying earlier, it wasn't so much in that section of the survey asking about the systemic changes they want to see. It was more, can you rank these personal activities? So I think from a systemic point of view, those answers would be quite different. What about coming to uh, politics and coming to the next election? Is there a clear political party for those radical young people who want to see this fundamental shift in how we tackle the climate crisis? It's going to be quite interesting to see, to be honest, because there was that green wave that we saw at the last election. And I would say if you were to check the temperature of uh, climate activists and the youth in general, I would say they'd be quite disappointed with the Greens tenure in government. Um, There's been some positive things like the Climate Act, but there hasn't been enough radical action. Um, so I, I'd say it'd be interesting to see where those climate votes shift towards. We're seeing a lot of energy, though, in the uh, climate um, activist movement. Um, so we'll have to see who has the best policies at that point in time. Uh, do you think it'll be the number one issue for that age cohort at the next election? I would say it will be there with housing. I'd say housing and climate will be the top two, I would say. All right, let me just go to uh, our politicians here. Um, first of all, I'm going to look at some of the things that young people who were surveyed, and it was quite a wide survey across the board, said that they were willing to do. First, higher level um, tax on meat. Is that something that Fine Gael supports? No, not at the moment. I think you have to look at in a global uh, position that when we as a country in Ireland are very uh, competitive in terms of how green uh, on a grass-based product that we can produce our meat, uh, it's not something we're prepared to do at the moment. Okay, Rose? No, I don't think that is something that that we would be prepared to do either. I think there are many, many other things that we can do other than that. I mean, we're in a a cost of living crisis as we are and we depend so much on on our agri-industry as well. So, Mm. but I think there are many other things. Let me just look at some of the other then. I just want to, because these are are three things that sort of came up in this ESRI survey. Uh, Ban on domestic flights. Either party. Very difficult to do. But what I would say as well, you see, when you look at this thing, you look at 6,000 private jet flights uh, departing. I mean, they need to be heavily taxed. So you would start there rather than, we're an island. Uh, You know, we depend on aviation as well. Absolutely unnecessary flights, but there are a lot of necessary flights as well. But those private jet flights are bringing income into airports like Knock and like Shannon and regional airports like Cork. And you have to reflect on that as well. You have to look at the global impact. I think the fact we've brought in a climate bill where we're legislating now for 51% of a decrease by 2030. We're going to have 80% renewable energy by 2030 and obviously to have a decarbonised economy hopefully by 2050. Those are trajectories we have to go on and each sectoral has their own um, reduction rate set. Okay, well, let me just look at the last one before I get to sort of where we're at now. Town and city centres, car-free zones. Yeah, I think there's huge improvements we made in relation to that. We have a number of decarbonised zones uh, around our country. You can see from some of the REDS funding that's going into um, uh, regional towns that car-free zones, there's a lot of areas in the centre of towns that there's less uh, cars in, but obviously Ah, at the moment... it's minimal, Peter Burke. Yeah, but there is improvements, though. There is improvements because people are are understanding that there is a change in the way how we go about our daily business, but I don't think you're going to have a situation. I'm not saying you're going to have car-free zones in our our towns and cities either at the moment. Would you support that, have electric vehicles and their cars as well. I would in terms of pedestrianisation, and I say we saw that with COVID in terms of the increased pedestrianisation, and I say I think that's the way to continue, but obviously you need to have the proper uh, public 
transport for people to be able to, to get to places where they need to get. So, but people really want to use public transport. And I think that's what's coming from this as well, is that people really want to do the right thing. And if you provide them with the alternatives, they will. Mm. I think there has been a huge mindset in terms of people willing to play their part. Yeah, I'm just really conscious. Are you still there, Dylan, that I've just gone to one of the main political parties and the main opposition parties and three of the suggestions, the radical policy changes that young people want in that survey, both parties have said, mm, we're not there yet. Does that surprise you, disappoint you? It would disappoint me, to be honest, like, and particularly this government. Um, they're kind of playing footsie, I guess, with some popular climate moves. Like, I, I see that there's a target there for renewables, but on the same side, the government wants to invest in uh, in gas, more gas production, um, LNG also possibly bring that in. Um, there'd be kind of different views based off the government coalition party, but it seems like Fine Gael are firmly in the camp of bringing in an LNG terminal in Ireland, which would be very destructive to our climate goals and eat into anything that we do from renewables. Okay. There's also the question of data centre regulation as well. Uh, do you think a lot of young people would be disappointed, though, Rose, that neither of the politicians here tonight agree with any of these radical changes, these really major changes no. that these young people want? They yeah. don't have a political party yeah. that yeah. is providing the yeah. climate policy they're looking for. I think it opens the discussions and I think young people have a really strong voice in this. But I think you need to look at things like, you know, there's no point in banning aviation if we still don't tax the private jets. There's no point in doing, you know, it, closing off city centres if we don't have the alternative transport. So these have to be things to be done. But there is an urgency and I absolutely agree with that and I welcome this report. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to all of my guests. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. But from us here on The Tonight Show, good night.